It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who do not think that we should have 940 cases of measles in a decade in the United States or anywhere, much less in May of one year. Okay, that's, there you go. (laughs) That's who we are. Um, Amen. (laughs) I'm Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, General Pediatrician at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa, where we've had two cases of measles. Not in in Des Moines, but in the greater Iowa area. We're going to talk about measles today with Mm -hmm. someone that uh, you may have heard of before. His name's Dr. Paul Offit. Mm -hmm. He runs the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's written a couple books about stuff. Um, And so I'm I'm, I'm hoping our audience is familiar with him. This is where uh, I want to get my buddy the elf and go, Dr. Offit, I know him. I know him. He's coming. (laughs) So we're excited to talk to him. When the measles cases just started going up and up and up and up, I knew that we were going to have to have him on. Before we do that, let's go ahead and do our Around the Web. Um, okay. Would you like to start, Nathan? Yeah, because I, I, I have the fluff piece. I'm going to do celebrity update. So I just want to mention three celebrities that have tweeted some pro-vaccine stuff. And the one of them, the last one is the one we'll discuss the most, because I don't think we discussed this uh, particular celebrity uh, on a recent episode. So I will mention, uh, I think Seth MacFarlane has multiple times uh, tweeted pro-vaccine stuff. Um, hmm. And he uh, kind of, you know, makes jokes about the anti-vaccine movement and stuff like that. And so he tweeted that these, I'm going to, I because I use PG language, I'm going to just drop a few words and that's okay you just have to go on twitter and find out what he says these measles outbreaks are scary make no mistake folks if you choose not to vaccinate you're endangering yourself and those around you get smart get educated and get vaccinated um and then the another celebrity who is close to my heart as a trekker trekkie what have you is robert picardo now do you know who robert picardo is Uh, um no (laughs) no i don't i thought you were gonna say will wheaton no, he's not. Well, Will Wheaton's also a pro-vaccine, yes. But Robert Picardo plays my personal favorite Star Trek doctor with with apologies to Leonard McCoy, Bones, DeForest Kelly. My favorite Star Trek doctor is the electronic medical hologram from Star Trek Voyager. Star Trek Voyager has a lot of issues, but the Robert Picardo, the electronic medical hologram, is not one of them. He's the highlight of that show. Anyway, he tweeted out about how uh, he said, vaccines work. Uh, and listed a bunch of other science positions and said, support science and put down your cell phone now. And he, he should know because he's from the future, right? Right? Like, yes. He's basically like, if you don't believe in science, you don't believe in me because I'm a sentient hologram. Okay. <laughs> and the last, uh, the last um, celebrity is Maureen McCormick. Do you know who Maureen McCormick is? Yes, I know her. Yes, she plays Marsha, 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 or did on the Brady Bunch. So the reason that hers is the most important here is just because the whole reason that she had uh, made some statements about the importance of vaccines and the dangers of measles is because the Brady Bunch is used as a, shall we say, poster sitcom for evidence that a vaccine is uh that that measles is not very dangerous and actually i do believe i don't want to say too much because we're gonna get into it a little bit in the interview that we're about to have but it is worth pointing out that after you know this is not a new thing that the that anti-vaccine websites have been saying about the brady bunch because there's this episode in which the brady bunch all get measles and they all say things like oh it's not so bad or whatever um she kind of goes on so maureen mccormick recently has gone on and went on to say, first of all, how disappointed is that she's used as this kind of a, that her and her show have been used for this kind of a position to, to try to convince people to not immunize. And she, she said, you know, she was never contacted about it. She said, I think it's really wrong when people use people's images today to promote whatever they want. And the person's image they're using, they haven't asked or have no idea where they stand on the issue. And she said, as a mother, my daughter was vaccinated. 
kids. So um, she talks about how having measles is not a fun thing. She remembered how it uh, spread through her family. And the show's creator, Sherwood uh, Schwartz, the son of the show's creator, sorry, said that dad would be sorry because he believed in vaccination. All of his kids vaccinated. So there. So if we're going to use Brady Bunch, as evidence that <laughs> measles aren't dangerous, we're going to use Brady Bunch as evidence that everybody should immunize their kids, and measles can be dangerous. Right. That's your celebrity update. Over to you, Karen. Now for traffic. No, um, <laughs> my around the web comes from Twitter as well, and this is something a friend of ours, the uh, always wonderful Liz Dietz, found for mm-hmm. us. It's a Twitter, a man on Twitter named Bjarke Monstead. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm probably seriously mispronouncing his name, but I have retweeted it so that you can find it through me. But he is, he's one of these data guys who can crunch numbers and make sense out of them. So he has a couple of tweets where he's looking at how anti-vaccine people and pro-vaccine people share information on Twitter about vaccines, particularly what they link to as proof. Um, And he found that anti-vaccine people, when they use links, between one-third and one-half of anti-vax links are to pages that sell alternative health products. (laughs) I know. That's my shocked pause. This is me putting on my Nicolas Cage, you don't say face. (sighs) I know. (laughs) Um, And then I just wanted to read, because he goes into some depth about it, and it's really one of those things where... You hope that um, there he is. You hope that someday he's gonna publish something on this somewhere mm-hmm. where we can link that's other than Twitter. But he he looks at what exactly are the number one sites that people are citing outside of Facebook. It looks as though um, anti-vaccine people cite YouTube, Natural News, and Health Impact News uh, as their sort of top three things that they cite. And pro-vaccine people cite uh, BBC, New York Times, and the CDC. So it's, uh, you know, Hmm. none of this is surprising. Right. Um, Especially because, uh, so I'm going to go into sort of a labyrinthine rant here. Especially since so much of what anti-vaccine people, the, the depth of their belief comes from not just not liking vaccines, but to sort of buying into the idea that experts are out to get you, that expertise isn't real, that you can learn anything you want from anywhere, and that um, there are conspiracies everywhere, um, you know, trying to get you. So I'm learning this information right after I just finally finished Tara Westover's book, Educated. Have you read that yet, Nathan? Hmm, No, no. Okay, well, you're going to want to. So Tara Westover uh, grew up with a father who probably had some sort of mental illness, and he was a pretty extreme conspiracy theorist. Um, Half of his children never even got birth certificates, never went to the doctor. Um, And she also didn't see – she never got her vaccines until she was in college and was – sort of said to herself, you know, I should get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she wouldn't take medication. They they didn't have any real medical care at all. They also never went to school. I mean, it was just, it, it was, um, I mean, it's a very sad story. There's a lot more to it than just those things because mm-hmm. it's her, it's her memoir, how she ended up at Cambridge and became, you know, just sort of this really, well-respected historian but part of when I'm reading this book really made me think about the anti-vaccine movement because her father really was convinced that there was a government conspiracy linked to things like medicine and vaccines and schooling and birth certificates and so this is where, you know, we're going to take another right turn in my little rant here. I was talking to a reporter who was trying to do a story, and she asked me, you know, why do why do people promote anti-vaccine ideas? And, I, you know, I said to her, you know, there's a lot of reasons. There's people who've just had really bad medical experiences, and they're just sort of burnt there's people who really 
aren't necessarily anti-vaccine, but they've heard enough scary stuff that they're scared. And then there's conspiracy theorists. And she said to me, well, the conspiracy theorists can't be that big of a contingent. And I said, you know, never under, <laughs> never underestimate the strength of conspiracy theorists in the anti-vaccine world. Right. And so, you know, I'm reading Educated, and then I'm also looking at these links that people are sharing from on this Bjarke Monstead's Twitter feed. And, you know, if you're sharing from YouTube, Natural News, Health Impact News, and there's more, too. There's News mm-hmm. Punch, World Truth, Vaccine Impact. Those, yep. are, the, those are the top sites. It's because... It, it always reminds me of that scene from Men in Black when you know he, they're walking past the newsstand and he grabs, yes. you know, the, the Enquirer. The <laughs> and he's like, this is where the real news is. <laughs> I, I always think of that when people share share natural news with me. I'm like, oh, that's where the real news is. Can't get it from the New York <laughs> Times. <laughs> so we're, we're all playing with different sets of facts and... Bjarke Monstead, if you go to his Twitter, I just keep saying his name because I'm hoping someone will <laughs> actually go mm-hmm. to his Twitter feed. He mm-hmm. also shares sort of the echo chamberiness about it, some some visualization of the data. And it, it's really interesting. Um, I don't know that I have any solutions <laughs> based on anything that he's come up with, but I it's at least informative that when we know and we're talking to someone who's sharing anti-vaccine stuff with us. Now, I'm not talking about, as I was sharing with a reporter before, someone who comes in and says, you know, I heard a scary story and now I'm scared. They're probably not sharing natural news with you, but they may have read natural news. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's my around the web is, um, you know, go, I go down Twitter, look them up, um, learn more about what they're doing. I really feel like the more we learn about, what these anti-vaccine folks are doing and sort of the psychology behind it and the patterns of what they're doing, the better equipped we are to provide people with better information and to train them to spot that misinformation and why it's coming from those sources. So I, I think it's all very important. Well, and I think what you said about never underestimate the conspiracy theorists in Mm -hmm. the anti-vaccine movement is very insightful because I do think that when you look at whether it's websites and or Facebook pages and or Twitter feeds or whatever, the major ones that disseminate information and that go viral and that the things that some of these social media uh, companies are cracking down on, there's never a conspiracy theory that they don't like. Like they try to cater to everybody. They want to have this big tent that Mm -hmm. includes those that are hesitant and, and uh, the, and, and those that are just kind of on the fence and then trying to portray themselves as the in between, like as the reasonable middle ground sometimes. Mm -hmm. But even if you go to like what one would, if I may use this term loosely, one of the more, I don't want to say reputable, but maybe serious, uh, trying to be serious sites, which would be the National Vaccine Information Center. So they try to present themselves as legit. They try to be serious. But if you go to their Facebook page, like I have a screenshot of when they were like of their Facebook feed where they were going on about chemtrails. Yeah. You know, they can't, they've never met, they can't say no to any particular group. And the same same is true, which we've talked about before with these groups that, you know, can't say no to uh, allying themselves with bigotry and racism, too. Right. Like, they're really trying to include everybody. And it amazes me that the people that are more middle of the road, uh, so to speak, will, like, are willing to be associated with that at all. I really think that mm-hmm. people, you know, regardless of how you feel about vaccines, you should reject a lot of this other stuff that happens on these on these sites. You should not give them attention or give them clicks or likes or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it really should yeah. delegitimize everything that they're saying, but somehow it doesn't. Somehow in in so many spheres all, all of this stuff is still taken seriously. I mean, I think it was just last week when a local reporter out of Oklahoma City sat down with all, all sorts of conspiracy theorists, yeah. sat down with Dr. Uh, 
Paul Thomas and and sat yeah. down with a mom who, you know, had this and and everyone just kind of jumped on her. And, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that these people have all sorts of fringe like beliefs should excuse them from ever being on the news. But somehow it right. still does not. And mm-hmm. I, I I wish I knew why. I and, and with lawmakers and with you know all sorts of people, people in the media, it it still it still is taken as a legitimate perspective. Mm-hmm. So yeah, drives me nuts. Speaking of lawmakers, <laughs> should we do a quick uh, mm-hmm. legislation roundup? Yes. So uh, Maine. Uh, yeah, let's see here. I got the headline up here. Maine governor. I think this was on Friday. Yep. That, uh, so today as we're recording, it's the 27th. So on the 24th ish or so, Maine governor, Janet Mills signed the bill, uh, ending most, ending most non-medical exemptions for mandatory childhood vaccines, uh, just days after the first confirmed measles case hit Maine. So they are the fourth state mm-hmm. essentially, uh, alongside West Virginia, Mississippi, and then more recently California, to right. eliminate religious and philosophical vaccine exemptions and only have medical exemptions essentially mm-hmm. for school entry. And the other thing with this law is that it doesn't allow a whole lot of grandfathering. I gonna mess up the details of this and some of our friends can tweet at me but i feel like with the california law there was kind of a a, there's like a gate at kindergarten and at seventh grade or another grade where you had to be up to date by but this one basically says everybody has to be up to date by the school year of 20 i think starting in 2021 so that's pretty great (laughs) i mean who knew maine you know yeah right I, I had I had my money on Colorado until mm-hmm. about a month before the end. Yeah. But yep. um yeah, good for Maine. Yep. And you know, I always say that the four states that have the most in common in our country are Maine, West Virginia, Mississippi, and California. Right, yeah. They're I mean, they're the ninja turtles of uh, of the United States really. But there's also federal legislation. It's bipartisan in at, in the US uh, House of Representatives that was filed by representative schreier it's called the vaccines Uh act it's one of those acronyms because you know federal lawmakers have never met an acronym they didn't love Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. do you know what the vaccine what the acronym stands for i'm betting the v is for vaccines i know and then i I mean vaccinations i'm sure the v is for vaccinations but i mean Uh you know all the other letters are just going to be like twisted so that it spells vaccines and it just it's fine. So uh, I've got it up here. It's the vaccine awareness campaign to champion immunization nationally and enhance safety. It actually reads pretty well. Okay. I'll, I'll give her that. So it basically what it does, and since you've got it pulled up, you can correct me where I'm wrong, <laughs> but basically it allows the CDC to sort mm-hmm. of collect more data. It funds them, first of all, to do this work. It allows them to collect more data, to do more research, and to have more campaigns that encourage immunization, which is pretty mm-hmm. fantastic. I know a lot of people are saying, you know, can't the CDC just do that? But right. the truth of the matter is that unless you enshrine into law funding to do something, mm-hmm. they can't do something. All of right. those dollars have to be accounted for and spent the way they, they were supposed to be spent. So this is a big deal. It reminds me very much of a bill that did not make it through in Minnesota that was supposed to give the Minnesota Department of Health money to um, work with communities to encourage immunization. And I believe Wisconsin also filed a similar bill this year too. So... I am glad that it's been filed at the federal level. It's it's a it's a good bill. It's very encouraging. But I do want to point out, sorry, I, I uh-huh. will point out that she is, I believe, the only pediatrician congressperson. Mm. So that's uh, you know, shout out to pediatricians. Right, and it's and it is bipartisan. You know, obviously, it needs a Senate companion bill, but it's exciting that that kind of bipartisan work can be done, and. You know, I'm sorry that we have to have so many sick kids in our country to to move the needle on this. But I honestly, it, it, we we got to get this stuff done quick because next year there's probably not going to be as many measles cases, and everyone mm-hmm. will forget just like that. Poof. Yeah, that's true. 
How do you think that this is a bipartisan bill? So certainly the anti-vaccine movement isn't too down on it. Do you think? Oh, you know, they. (laughs) (laughs) I can't even keep a straight face myself. They're (laughs) being distracted by a different bill that I don't even know who's sponsoring it. um, That does something entirely different that I'm not even going to mention right now, but they're being distracted and fighting that right now. I haven't seen them even notice Schreier's bill yet. So I don't know. They will. I mean, you know, they've got pretty good uh, legislative watchers. But if you get a chance out there, call up your uh, call up your representatives and tell yeah. them that you support the vaccines bill from Congresswoman Trier. Right. No reason to not at least mention it or leave a voicemail or send an email right. or something like that. Right. One thing that we should keep an eye on is there's always a chance of an amendment being attached to a bill like this. Right. Uh, from one of our anti-vaccine friends. So they could attach something that says, and also while you're at it, the CDC should investigate, you know, lime rods in vaccines or something Yeah, um, yeah. that would totally waste time, money, resources, and brain cells. So that's, that's one word of caution that, uh, be vigilant, ever vigilant, mm-hmm. constant vigilance. That's right. And, you know, be more like Maine, <laughs> <laughs> be like Maine. Who knew? Okay, I think after the break, we should invite in Dr. Paul Offit. What do you think? Let's bring him right into the studio. <laughs> All right. All right, let's go get him. He's been him. waiting out there I for know. quite a while We now. just, right outside the door there, just yep. locked him out. We're going to open the door and let him in. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we are now joined by Dr. Paul Offit, who is uh, from the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Hi, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Karen. So I decided that it we really needed to have you on because you know so much more about measles and measles outbreaks than most of the adult population in the world. Um, and here we are in the middle of a measles outbreak. I was just sort of doing my Google this morning. By the time this is edited and reaches everyone in the world, I'm sure things will have changed. But what I oh, just a couple of facts that I have here, and you correct anything I'm getting wrong, is that we have 880 cases currently, or not currently, we have had 880 cases of measles so far this year, the largest of which is, um, the largest outbreak is an ongoing outbreak in Rockland, New York, uh, which has been going on since September 2018 as an ongoing measles outbreak. And we, I fought, saw a statistic that between the years 2001 and 2019, one-third of the cases of measles that have occurred in that time have occurred in this calendar year. And that we, have, we are seeing more measles cases than in any year since 1994. So did I get that all right? Yes, that's that's exactly right. The good news, if there's any good news in this, is that um, as is invariably true, although these these outbreaks start in September, they usually end by the end of May. As the weather gets warmer, measles will abate. Okay. Why is that? Why does warm weather make a difference? No idea. You would okay. think as an infectious disease specialist, I would have some idea about this. I mean, rotavirus, for example, is a winter guest for enteritis. Polio is a summer guest for enteritis. Why those two things are different is beyond me. There, there are winter respiratory viruses and summer respiratory viruses. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't know if it had anything to do with UV rays because I was talking to Patsy Stinchfield and she told me that when they make those uh, the rooms where they put measles kids in the hospitals, that they, they pump the air out and they treat it with UV light and then pump it back in. Um, and I don't know if that would have anything to do with it. But if you don't know, then my theory is certainly just wild speculation. <laughs> I think that might fall into the category of wild speculation. Yeah. I mean, UV, UV rays certainly damage um, DNA, um, but that would be true. You know, first of all, measles is an RNA virus, so, so I'm not sure why oh. that would be true. Okay. We don't know whether this is an actual kind of... Um, biological thing with uh, the body and the virus itself or whether it's a, a kind of a 
social thing in terms of exposure and going out to other people or being in more enclosed rooms or anything like that. There's no inkling that we have either way as far as why it seems to be seasonal. No, I mean, why, you know, you would think that, that if crowding were the issue, um, right. that, you know, that we wouldn't really have much in the way of things over the summer. But, you know, there are definitely summer respiratory and gastrointestinal viruses. I mean, you know, rotavirus sort of starts in the southwest and then it sort of spreads across the country. Um, mm-hmm. Why does that happen? I, I have no idea. Yeah, that's weird because the influenza starts in the east, doesn't it? And then spreads across the country that way. Yeah, no idea. I'm sure if I went to the right websites, I could come up with all kinds of fantastic (laughs) theories about this, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so that's an interesting point. But I think the big question is, um, I mean, who could have seen this measles outbreak coming? Isn't this a surprise and unexpected? Well, so we eliminated measles from the United States in the the year 2000, which is to say there was no more American child to American child spread. But measles was always coming into this country uh, because there are countries which have not eliminated disease. International travel is common. And that's what you see here. I mean, for example, the outbreak in the Ukrainian American population in Washington state was because people had traveled to Ukraine and come back. The outbreak in New York and New Jersey and Detroit and Baltimore um, are in, you know, these sort of Orthodox Jewish communities that where there had been travel to Israel where the disease is endemic and then come back. So, you know, we just didn't have a high enough level of herd immunity in those communities to protect spread from one American child to the next. So we, you know, we've been roiling under the surface here for the last few years. This is the biggest outbreak at, you know, over 800 cases. But to just put this in some perspective, um, you know, when you said I know a lot about measles because I'm old, that's the reason I know a lot about measles. So, you know, (laughs) I had measles. I mean, I was born in 1951. So I had measles. I like all people before 1957, I had measles. And, um, you know, there would be three to four million cases of measles a year in this country. There would be 48,000 hospitalizations and 500 deaths. It was a common disease. Um, 800, 800 infections is a lot, but compared to what it was, it was, it's really a blip compared to what we used to see. Right. Let me ask you a little something about those stats, because one of the myths that's promoted by anti-vaxxers is that measles isn't as deadly as people claim it is. And they they cite sort of those statistics in concert with each other that, you know, there were 3 million cases of measles a year and 500 deaths. And they, they do a division problem with that and say, you know, how, why do people think that measles, the death rate for measles is one to two um, per thousand cases? So can you just explain to us how um, their math is wrong and where the, the mortality rate for measles comes from? Well, so, so that's the math, basically. Five, 500 deaths per roughly 3 million cases. Um, and the deaths were invariant. Um, deaths were, were caused primarily by um, dehydration, secondarily by pneumonia, third by, um, by encephalitis. But, you know, we had a measles outbreak in 1991 in Philadelphia that I lived through. And over a several month period, we had 1,400 cases and nine deaths in that, uh, in that period of time. And that, that was a higher mortality rate than you would ever normally see. And, and the reason being that um, these parents who had chosen not to vaccinate their ch- children also chose not to seek medical care. These were this epidemic centered on two faith healing communities and then spread to the surrounding community. The mortality rate in the surrounding community was, was much less, but um, it was hard to watch. The notion that measles um, makes you stronger is uh, is just wrong. Measles can kill you. And also measles for the first uh, few weeks, as, as Nathan certainly knows, suppresses the immune response. It, it's called the measles paradox, which is to say, if you were naturally infected with measles like I was, you develop an excellent immune response to measles, which will protect you for the rest of your life. On the other hand, at least in the first four weeks or so, it suppresses your immune response in general because the virus reproduces itself in cells that are critical, so-called antigen-presenting cells in the immune system. So you, for example, if you can't get a PPD to see whether or not you've gotten uh, um, tuberculosis because that that virus suppresses your your immune system. And more importantly, if you're infected with measles, you're much more likely to develop bacterial sepsis, which is to say, you know, bacteria that enter the bloodstream and cause disease um, than if you haven't had measles. So measles is a killer. And, and people should have a healthy respect for measles. And I think they're getting that. I mean, there now are a handful of children in New York City hospitals that are in the intensive care unit with measles. That, I think, has been sobering. 
Can you tell us a little bit about then the treatment of measles, what we do actually do in cases where they occur? I know you hear a lot about vitamin A on the internet and whatnot, and what role does that play? And uh, how are those, how are the complications reduced when we do actually see cases of measles in, in hospitals in the United States? Right. So, so the treatment is supportive, right? There's no antiviral medicine for measles. So if the child's dehydrated, you give them intravenous fluids. If they have pneumonia, including severe pneumonia, then you give them, you know, you, you, you give them a respiratory support, whether it's, it's an oxygen by face mask or whether it's a ventilator or whether it's an oscillator or it's, whether it's a heart lung machine, depending on how serious that measles virus pneumonia is. If the measles virus pneumonia sets up for a bacterial pneumonia, which happens with, you know, bacteria like staph or strep, then you give antibiotics in addition to, you know, treating the, uh, supportively treating the pneumonia. And if the child has encephalitis, you just stand back and hope for the best. Uh, we, we had an encephalitis death during that measles outbreak in 1991, and there's nothing that you can do. The vitamin A helps, quote unquote, sort of boost the immune system to some extent to get around the problems that are caused by immune suppression associated with measles that can then be associated with bacterial sepsis. But, you know, you're, you're basically just hoping for the best. It's, it's, you know, this isn't a bacterial infection. Therefore, the, 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 because it isn't specifically treated, the, the best option is to prevent it. The good news is we have something to prevent it, which is the measles vaccine. So good, in fact, that we eliminated this highly contagious disease by the year 2000. Because you've lived through measles yourself um, well before the 1990-91 outbreak, I kind of want to ask you about one, another myth of the anti-vaccine movement, which is that measles isn't a big deal. You can tell by watching the Brady Bunch that they were excited, like all the kids were excited to have measles and to stay home, um, which Marsha Brady um, apparently is upset these days that they said that. But what was what was measles like did before we could prevent it were people blase about it um what was sort of the the feeling about measles among parents and among doctors if i i know you weren't a doctor back then but among doctors as well well, I certainly was a doctor during measles epidemics so I've, right. I've seen that but i think no you're right i mean the brady bunch i think at one point uh uh the mother says, you know, they, you can tell they have measles because they're all smiling, meaning that they get to stay home from school. Well, uh, people with measles aren't smiling. And, and when they come, people come into our hospital and there's a suspicion of measles, I can tell whether it's measles in 30 seconds. And it's, it's based on how miserable the child is. I mean, aside from the fact that they have a rash that starts at the hairline and then spreads down from, to the face and the trunk and the, the uh, arms and legs, this sort of blotchy um, rash, red rash. Um, you know, they have congestion, cough, runny nose. And then the, the one of the characteristic things that everybody talks about is something called complex spots with like these little grains of sand on the inside of your cheek. But that's not how I can tell. The way I can tell is because they are always photophobic, meaning that they are intolerant to light. They never look up. Uh, they, they can't look up at you because, you know, you're, to look up at you is to expose their eyes to light more. They're always looking down and squinting. Um, it, that to me is always the characteristic sign of measles is photophobia. Measles makes you sick. If you get chest x-rays on um, children with measles, 50% of them will have abnormal chest x-rays. Now, they all don't have clinical pneumonia, but 50% will have abnormal chest x-rays. Measles is, is an infection of your lungs. And I don't think people have a, a real appreciation for measles, but they're getting there. I think when you see children admitted to the ICU in New York, I think people now are, are appropriately fearing the disease. I mean, there's not a day that goes by where I don't get a call from a parent or a doctor wondering whether they can vaccinate children down to six months of age. You know, the let's talk a little bit about both to kind of the healthcare providers out there and also to parents who are kind of wondering, like they have a kid who's got a fever and a rash and they don't know if it's measles and they don't have the experience that you have or the doctors like myself who has never seen measles and, and don't have that experience. What should parents do if they're wondering about it? They have a you know, fever and rash, and then, of course, you got the, the three Cs, the cough, coryza, which is basically runny nose, and conjunctivitis, which are pretty nonspecific and could kind of be any virus. So parents, if they're worried about measles, um, whether they're immunized or not immunized, whether their children are immunized or not immunized, and then, and then doctors, nurses, and whomever that gets the call and says, I have a fever and a, my child has a fever and a rash. What do you think kind of the flow should be for these kind of situations? Right. So, so if they're getting their care from a doctor or they're getting their care from the emergency room, I think they need to give the doctor or the emergency department a heads up 
that this is what you're worried about and that you want the child to be seen to see whether or not it is measles because you don't want to expose people in the waiting room, you don't, either in the emergency department or in the doctor's office to this virus because it's highly contagious. Um, it's spread by so-called small droplet and those small droplets can hang in the air for a couple hours. So when, for example, we see a child in our emergency department with measles, um, no one can go in that room for two hours until those small droplets settle. The point being, you don't have to have contact with someone uh, with measles to catch it. You just have to be in their airspace. So you have to have a healthy respect for how incredibly contagious this, this virus is. I mean, the story that I tell, and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, was that of a teenager who was unvaccinated, part of a church group. She goes to... Um, to a foreign country, I think Romania, where she visits a um, hospital and she visits a, 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 a just a, a place where uh, children are, are being taken care of um, who are ab ab abandoned. And she, unknown to her, catches measles. She then gets on a plane, comes back. Now, she's not symptomatic yet, but you're, you're, you shed most of your virus. You're most likely to shed in the day or two before you actually develop symptoms. That's when you're most likely to, to be contagious. So she goes to a church picnic of 500 people. She's there for two hours. Of the 500 people that were in the picnic, 465 had either been vaccinated or naturally infected. Of those 465, three were infected, meaning less than 1%. Of the remaining 35 people at that picnic who had not been vaccinated or um, uh, naturally infected, 31 got sick. 31 of 35, that's roughly 90% of those people who weren't vaccinated or naturally infected got sick, which, which, which tells you something. She didn't have face-to-face -face contact with all 35 people. They just had to be in her airspace. That's how contagious measles is. Wow, that's really kind of amazing to, be, to hear those statistics from that, like kind of natural experiment right there. So um, obviously we want everybody to get immunized. So what barriers are going on right now to getting everybody their measles vaccine? Um, and what can we do? What can our listeners do to help? So I think you can break this down into two groups. I, I think one group of people um, are concerned about vaccines because they don't see the disease or diseases and they've read a lot of scary stuff about it on the internet or on in chat rooms or social media. I, I think I, I get those calls all the time. And I think for the most part, those folks are convincible. I think you just have to find out what it is they're concerned about, try and explain to them how one would answer those concerns, explain that they have been answered, and, and then be re let people know that a choice not to get a vaccine is not a risk-free choice. It's a choice to take a dangerous and more serious risk, and now we're seeing what that risk looks like. I think the other group are people who are just simply conspiracy theorists. They, they um, believe that the pharmaceutical companies are out to do them harm. They believe that the government and the medical establishment are just in line with those, those pharmaceutical companies, and there is no convincing them. I think, um, therefore, trying to get people vaccinated becomes a two-pronged approach. For the first group, I think education, reassurance, explaining, and I think we do need to re-explain ourselves. I think when people aren't compelled by the diseases anymore, and they're, they're more likely to be scared of the vaccine, we need to step back and re-explain ourselves. I mean, to people like me who live through these diseases, it's an easy, uh, it's an easy sell. But for, for my children who are in their 20s and never have seen these diseases, I think you need to explain it again. That's fine. Uh, and I think they are convincible. I think people basically want to trust their doctors. I think basically people want to trust their health professionals. I don't think most people think their health professionals are trying to do them harm. On the other hand, I think for the other group, for the group who are unconvincible, and, and, and there are enough of them where you now are starting to see outbreaks, and I think that is the story in, in, uh, in these ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities in Detroit, Baltimore, um, and, you know, Lakewood, and, and Brooklyn. I think... Um, I think the only way to um, get those groups vaccinated is to compel them by law. I'm glad that you brought up the ultra-Orthodox communities. One of the things that's been troubling to me is that some of, in the last, you know, five years, some of our largest outbreaks have happened in, you know, s some sort of minority community, religious minority, um, ethnic minority. So the ultra-Orthodox outbreaks... Uh, the Somali outbreak in Minnesota, the um, Amish outbreak in Ohio, and uh, um, I, I don't know enough about the Ukrainians in, in Seattle to know whether or not they're treated like a minority there. But one of the things that's concerning me about the ultra-Orthodox outbreak is that uh, you have leaders in that community themselves promoting anti-vaccine misinformation 
and that that's in contrast to um, Somali Minnesota leaders, uh, particularly imams, who worked with public health to try to assuage some fears and get people vaccinated. And so what I mean, I, I agree with you that I think that there's some that we need to compel people to vaccinate, um, certainly if they're going to attend public school. But I also am concerned about this long term effect of having the leaders in the community who are promoting anti-vaccine misinformation and having those leaders be part of an already sort of maligned minority group. So, so what can we do with those people who are endangering public health? Is, is, there, is there any way we can fix that? Here's what I would say, because I think the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in, in Brooklyn, Baltimore, um, Lakewood, and um, Detroit is a, is a perfect example. First of all, um, although these groups will often claim a religious exemption, their reasons for not vaccinating have nothing to do with religion. The, the reasons that there's a magazine that's been distributed in those communities called Peach, it's an acronym for like parents educating about childhood health, um, that just has the usual anti-vaccine tropes, right? Too many vaccines too soon, vaccines contain toxins, harmful ingredients, et cetera. Um, so that's not, it has nothing to do with religion. It's just the usual reasons for not getting vaccines, which is getting bad information that caused you to make a bad decision. They hide behind a religious exemption. I would say this though, I think most of the leaders in those groups have generally stood up and said, sorry, this is not us. This is not the Torah. This is not right. Jewish teaching. There are unfortunately, you know, one or two in those groups who, who, who are, you know, uh, religious clerics in those groups who have supported um, that anti-vaccine point of view. And I think that is shameful. And I agree with you. It's interesting to note that, that most people in the, the ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities do get vaccinated. It's, it really is, you know, the Jewish religion, like every religion, um, preaches good health, preaches caring about your children, preaches caring about your community. So this is not, it's not a Jewish phenomenon, which, which worries me because, you know, every time you see, I saw this happen in Philadelphia in 1991, Th those two faith healing groups that were the center of an epidemic accounted for 500 cases and seven deaths, but, but the other 900 cases and two deaths were in the outlining communities. And I can't begin to tell you how angry people were at those two religious groups. Right. Very, very, very angry. And and I feel, you know, every time I look in the newspaper or, or, and see a picture of, you know, the sort of Hasidic community with, you know, with the payases and the yarmulkes, if, as, if that, as, if, as fortunately we're coming to the end of this epidemic, but as it spreads to surrounding communities and could cause suffering and hospitalization and death, I see those communities as potentially being targeted, you know, for, for uh, there's enough being targeted. Uh, there's enough anti-Semitism as there is in this country now, right. but uh, this would only make it worse. And I, I, it is distinctly not a Jewish phenomenon. And I just, I, I worry that, uh, that, that you're right and not enough people in the community, and not to have stood up, because I think a number have stood up, but they just haven't been effectively able to stand up. Right. And, uh, and so we suffer this. And it'll be, it's gonna go away at the end of this month, beginning of next month. We won't see any measles anymore until next September, October. But it'll be back next year. Right. And, you know, and that um, I should say, too, I have I have a concern about when it happens in a particular community, especially a minority community, that people see measles as sort of an other problem. So it's a problem with refugees or a problem with, you know, um, in more insular communities. And, and the problem is with them instead of seeing the problem as an infectious disease problem and as a vaccine refusal problem. Yes, and this has historically always been true. If you look, for example, when, when it was unclear how polio was, was uh, transmitted, there was an, a book, a wonderful book by Naomi Rogers called Dirt and Disease, where immigrants are always the first to be blamed. I mean, even Trump, when he was, uh, when there were, you know, the quote unquote caravans coming up from the South, I mean, he, he at one point said, they're carrying smallpox, they're carrying mm -hmm. leprosy. I mean, which obviously isn't true, but, um, you know, because that's such an, uh, a well-worn um, thing that we do is, is blame immigrants for anything bad that seems to be happening in this country. I think that's worth making clear. Then you mentioned, you know, one of the historically one of those uh, measles outbreaks with an uh, unvaccinated person going and catching it and bringing it back. Tell us a little bit about um, 
in general how these outbreaks start is that usually the pattern how how uh, how do we get measles into the country now that's how they start uh, so so in 2000 we were able to eliminate measles from this country or said another way there was no transmission from of one american child to another american child but measles was still constantly coming into this country because you know international travel is common there are many countries where measles is endemic so not surprising people get on a plane and bring measles into this country but immunization rates were high enough that you that we were able to prevent person to person spread that were native you know, that were uh, american children um but if you look at what's happening now, the, the outbreak in Washington state in, among the Ukrainian American population, which gives people who traveled to Ukraine and come back and brought measles with them. The outbreak in, uh, in, among um, the ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities in New York and Michigan and, and Baltimore and New Jersey are because people traveled to Israel where the virus is endemic and then brought it back again. You know, the Philippines, it's endemic. It, in Western Europe, <laughs> measles is endemic. So um, we actually are pretty good at this country at vaccinating our children and keeping these diseases away. But now you're seeing a breakdown. And whenever there's a breakdown in herd immunity, measles, because it's so contagious, is always the first disease to come back. I'm glad that you brought up um, the, the fact that it's coming in from places that are endemic. I've seen uh, one concern online. There's actually it, it was a Wired article, I think, was published in the last few days that said, you know, measles was eliminated, but that might not last. And part of it was that the way the CDC defines measles elimination has to do with measles not having spread for 12 continuous months in a specific geographical area. So I like to do worst case scenarios because it makes me feel good and that's how I function. But I'm just... <laughs> I'm I'm just thinking, what if that measles outbreak doesn't end in Rockland, New Jersey? What if it continues past September? Then do we lose our elimination status? Do we have to wear, you know, a, an a America's uh, cone of shame because we're the country that lost our elimination status. What what happens? I mean, is that possible? I know it, it's is it likely what happens then? I think we've lost our elimination status. Okay. I, th I think in 2000 we we were able to show that for you know a period of time there was no measles spread from one American child to the next. But remember, measles was still coming into the country. So that's the definition. And I think now with you know what more than 800 cases this year, which is, is um, I think more than doubles what we saw last year. Last year I think it was a little less than 400 cases. Um, you know, we we uh, it will go away. I, I just want to make this this point, if nothing else, that the measles will definitely disappear when the weather gets warmer. That's always true. I mean, I lived through that '91 epidemic, and when that was happening, it seemed like you know we had 1,400 cases and nine deaths. That this was never going to end. I mean, our 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 city was in a panic. There were there were schools that canceled trips to the city. Philadelphia was a fear destination. People were scared to come into the city. You had to be there for this, but it was bad. And this is you know 30 years into the availability. Of measles vaccine, Bob Levinson was the head of the uh, city department of public health. And while we're all panicking around him, he just calmly said, when the weather gets warmer, this is going to go away. And that's exactly what happened. So I, I'm a believer now that, that it's the warm weather that will solve this problem for the moment. But, you know, it'll be back again at the end of the year. Yeah, that reminds me of the recent uh, episode of Madam Secretary, where a lot of the countries were kind of passing blame about who had uh, measles outbreaks and and how other countries viewed them based on their elimination status and whatnot. So, I'm hopeful that uh, I'm hopeful that you're right. <laughs> yeah, and I think you raised the point earlier, um, Karen, about you know the out, the episode on the Brady Bunch. There was also an episode on the Flintstones that uh, that did mm -hmm. this, and and in both of those cases, they portrayed measles as kind of a harmless inconvenience. It's anything but that. And um, anybody who lived through these epidemics and worked in a hospital during these epidemics knows that. It's a frightening disease. Yeah, I, I'm always fascinated by the logic there that because it was in a sitcom or some fictional television show that's targeted to families or kids that uh, that means that it wasn't a dangerous disease. Obviously, when you're doing things for kids, you're not going to show the worst case scenarios of measles and whatnot. Uh, when you've got the Flintstones, you're not going to, you know, you're not trying to scare kids to death about a disease that they almost inevitably will catch at the time. So to kind of 
use that as a gauge for how actually dangerous measles is, 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 well, silly is probably the best way to put it. Right. I guess they were never going to have bam, bam, die of measles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, bam, bam. Oh, poor bam, bam. I think if there's any silver lining in this, it's that there's been an enormous amount of attention drawn to the uh, seriousness of this disease. I've, uh, it's an opportunity, I think, now more than ever to explain the importance of vaccines. And um, so the children don't have to suffer this. Uh, and it is that, that tension now in, this, in, uh, in the community of, of what is your right as a parent? I mean, is it your right to allow your child to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection? I think the answer to that question is no. And I think the only solution to this problem in the end is to eliminate non-medical exemptions, which never made sense to begin with. I mean, when people choose not to vaccinate their children, that choice is based on bad information. People, if you ask people why they're not vaccinating their children, they tell you it's because vaccines are weakening or overwhelming or perturbing the immune system and causing a variety of chronic diseases, which isn't true. So they're making a bad decision based on bad information and hiding behind these, these you know, words like religious exemption or philosophical exemption when it's not that at all. I mean, be honest about what these exemptions are. There, I've gotten a lot of bad information off the internet that scared me. I'm not really scared of the disease. I think Jenny McCarthy is a healthcare guru, and therefore I've decided not to get a vaccine exemption, because that's at least more honest about what these things are. And I think that, that for the same reason we don't allow philosophical or religious exemptions to car seats, I think we shouldn't allow this now. And, and it's just hard to watch us stand back and let this happen. I, I think the American jurisprudence has a streak in it that is wide and long to allow the uh, the parents, uh, you know, to have rights. And we assume that the parent represents the best interest of the child, which is usually true, but not always true. And in this case, it's not true. And then who stands up for the child? Who represents the child's interests here? And I think in the end, it, it has to be the state when the parent doesn't. Absolutely. I just want to mention, too, um, that a lot of people get confused about this, but those exemptions are given at the state level, not at the not in Washington, D.C. And so... If you agree with Dr. Offit, which you should always and always agree with Dr. Offit, um, you you want to contact the person who represents you at your state capitol and be the person that that representative or senator or assembly person hears from about vaccines more than any other person in the world so that the children of your state are universally protected against measles and other vaccine preventable diseases. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining us today. Thank you, Karen. It's my pleasure. Yeah, it's always great to have you, and we'll have you a bunch more times. Mm. Um, And thank you, everybody who's listening on your headphones or on your Alexa or on your whatever, for joining us today. Please do do whatever you can to help us eliminate outbreaks in general. My name is Karen Ernst. I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician at Blank Terms Hospital. You can find me on Facebook or on Twitter uh, and at my blog at pedsgeekmd.com. And that's it. Thanks. Thanks.